I'm reading from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is definitely good to be back home. I'm especially glad to be here um, because something happened while I was gone or when I got back. I don't know what, but I got something. This is the first day out of the house since Monday, so I'm really glad to be here. My voice is a little weak, so bear with me if it starts to fade, but I do have some things I like to communicate. You know what, you've probably um, known some people over the years that just can't stop talking, right? Yeah, you know those people, you're thinking of them right now, hope it's not your spouse, but anyway, um, can't stop talking, they just talk all the time, and you think, what is going on there, why can't they just stop it up a little bit, but it's just part of who they are, they just talk. I remember um, in high school, I had a, a guy in our class that was like that, and he talked so much that everybody hated it, and they would constantly, his name was Glenn Roseman, I hope he's not listening to this sermon, but um, <clears throat> Glenn Roseman would just talk incessantly, so much so that people would shout at him, Glenn, just shut up, but he wouldn't. When you said it, he would talk more. As a matter of fact, when we played sports sometimes, he would just chatter. You know a person who's a trash talker? That wasn't Glenn. He wasn't trash talking. He was just talking incessantly all the time. We ought to do this. We ought to do that. We ought to shut up, Roseman. That's what people would yell. And I have seen on more than one occasion people literally punch him to get him to shut up. And they were on his team. But he wouldn't stop. Glenn just couldn't stop talking. When I think of the disciples, the person I think of fits that description is Peter. He just couldn't stop talking. And a lot of times he would say stupid things or he may say something that seemed absolutely correct and it was the wrong thing to say. But it didn't seem to stop him. He always kept talking. Remember that occasion where Peter is with James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration? Elijah and Moses and Jesus Christ are standing before them, completely glowing in the glory of God, and Peter has to say something. I mean, why do you talk at that moment? Just stand there. But he starts talking, and he says, Jesus, this is really great. Here's what we ought to do. We ought to build three tents, one for you and one for Elijah and one for Moses. Now, I wasn't there, but 
But I think Jesus was like, what? What are you talking about? But Jesus didn't say anything. Actually, a voice from heaven came. And the voice from heaven, as if to interrupt Peter's incessant talking, said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. It's almost like it said, Peter, be quiet and listen. On another occasion, Peter not only was a talker, he was a doer. And on one particular occasion, when Jesus was threatened, he pulls his sword out. And he strikes off the ear of the high priest. Jesus looked at Peter and he said, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know that those who live by the sword also die by the sword? Do you want to be one of those, Peter? Then... When Peter was with Jesus on an occasion where Jesus actually predicted his own death. Peter jumped in and he said, wait a minute, Lord, that can't be right. Would you say that to Jesus? That's not, I'm just thinking I wouldn't. Um, You're wrong, Jesus. But Peter said, no, you you can't be saying the right thing here, Lord. You're the Messiah. You're not going to die. That's in effect what he was saying. And Jesus turned to him in that moment. It's one of the most poignant moments in the New Testament. And I wonder what Peter felt. He just turned to him. And he glared at him. And he said, get behind me, Satan. Holy moly. If Peter wasn't quiet before then, surely he was quiet for a few minutes after that. But here, Peter says the right thing. It might have been that he wanted to duck after he said whatever he said because he was often wrong. But when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Some say you're the prophet, like Jeremiah or John the Baptist. But who do you say I am? Jesus says, and Peter spoke up, as always. And he said, you're the Messiah. Or the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus turned to him, and Peter must have been thinking, oh no, I got it wrong again. Jesus turned to him and said, Peter, you got it right. And on this rock, not you, Peter, but on this rock, your confession, I'm going to build my church. The foundation of my church is going to be what you just said. What an epic moment. What did he mean? I mean, Peter, when he said, you're the Christ, the the son of the living God. I don't think he knew what he meant. Oh, I don't mean he didn't know anything about what he meant. What I mean is, I don't think he knew the full import of his words. He couldn't have. 
Historically, it was not possible to understand the full impact of the words that he just uttered. What is called the confession. Because he didn't have full knowledge of who Jesus was. He just knew what he knew. He knew he loved Jesus. And he wanted to follow him. And he'd heard those words. And he believed them. We later understand as history unfolds that to make that utterance, that declaration, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, is to essentially say that you, Jesus Christ, are fully God and fully man. It is you walking in the flesh that is God. Not some prophet like Elijah. Not some human being like anybody else. Not even an angel of God. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. You are both God and man all in one. God made flesh. Now you know what? As a person who's inclined to theological stuff, I could go on and on about the details of what that must mean. And you would be bored out of your mind. But I'm not going to. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask a simple question. What does it mean practically that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? What it means is this. It means that Jesus provides for us undeserved redemption. Peter got this. He got it especially after the resurrection. And on the day of Pentecost, he actually got up and preached to 3,000 people in a mass meeting in sort of a, a town square. And one of the things he said was this. Let me read the words from Acts chapter 2. He said, friends, fellow Israelites, I want to tell you this. Jesus was handed over to you by God. It was God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge that he was handed over. To, handed over to you? Yes, to be crucified. He was handed over to you. And it was God's will for it to happen. And you, he says, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Why? Because he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Because he's the God-man Jesus Christ. And even though he died in his body, he cannot remain in the grave because he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter begins to understand it, and he declares it to them. But wait, my friends, wait. He didn't just make a statement like that. He basically said, do you understand what just happened? What just happened is that God let you kill God so that the undeserved redemption of God could come to you. It was God's deliberate plan in foreknowledge of this very event, that the people, the people, my friends, who crucified the Christ, crucified that Christ, 
and through that crucifixion. Through that crucifixion, with their hands, they can see God. Their redemption was in the person that they killed. Undeserved redemption. Peter gets it, and he proclaims it on that first day. You know what else he might have said? As far as I know, he didn't. But he could have said, I know how this works, my friend. This undeserved redemption, because I was one of the people who was with Jesus and deserted him. I walked with him for three years, and when it came down to where the rubber met the road, where Jesus is at trial, I turned my back on him and walked away. I did even more than that. On that same night, somebody said, oh, I know you, you're one of them. You know Jesus. And he said, I cursed out loud and said, I don't even know the man. Oh, Peter could have said, and maybe he did, I understand undeserved redemption. Because after I cursed him, he turned and looked at me. When I, he did, I ran into the night and wept and asked for forgiveness. So says Peter on that day of Pentecost, you, like me, are undeserved recipients of God's grace even though you're responsible for Jesus' death. That's what it means to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. The second thing it means to be the Christ, the Son of the living God is that Jesus is the hidden wisdom of God. The hidden wisdom of God. Paul put it this way. In 1 Corinthians, he, he penned these words. Listen to these words. He understands this and he's describing it to those who are listening. He says, for the message of the cross, the one we're talking about here, God crucified in Jesus Christ, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified? Stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why? Because the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. The weakness of God is stronger than human strength. To some people, it continues to be a scandal. How could God even become human? That's inappropriate. To others, it's just pure foolishness. Why would God do such a silly thing? But to those who believe, it's the very power 
of God in you. The power of the resurrection. The hidden wisdom of God. A third thing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, means is this. Jesus is the perfect priest. You know what a priest is. A priest is a person who serves as a mediator between God and humanity. We're down here. God's out there wherever out there is. We're here. We die. God's there. He's eternal. And in order to reach God, there's a far way to go. And routinely, across the history of humanity, everybody has understood one thing. They can't get there by themselves. They need a mediator. And in the history of religions, you have this central intuitive human understanding being exploited and misunderstood. Which is why you have all kinds of forms of images and idolatry, all kinds of forms of sacrifices, all kinds of rituals, all kinds of things to get you to mediate you to God. Because we know we're separated. By the way, this has been part of our religion too. I mean, the misunderstanding concerning reaching God. One of the great privileges I had in Pakistan as a professor was to teach the Great Reformation. You know what's going on in the Great Reformation, don't you? Martin Luther and other people began to recognize that the church that they love has gone off track. They've begun to manipulate in some cases and other cases misunderstand the whole notion of the mediation between God and humanity. And they begin to believe that there's only one way to get to God. It's through the particular details of following the law and following prescribed ways of praying and penance and indulgences. And it all goes through a priest who's the mediator to God who ostensibly lives the right way and says the right things and does the right things. And if he'll pray on your behalf, you can Find God as a mediatory way to the divine. Martin Luther, studying the scriptures and, and studying St. Augustine, said, wait a minute, we got this all mixed up. It's not the way it was. Jesus didn't teach that. Jesus taught that we have access to God the Father because there's only one mediator between God and humanity. It is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is that that's the mediator. And anyone, any place, any time, under any condition can cry out directly to God and they will be heard. That, that was epic, my friends. 
It revolutionized Europe and the world. But you know all it was? It was just a reminder of what the Bible said. So a priest is not necessary? Oh, yes, it is. But don't call me priest. <laughs> a priest is not necessary? Yes, it is. But it's necessary, and it exists in one person. Remember the writer of the book of Hebrews? He talked about this. He gave us these words. He said, there's a force since we have a great high priest. Not a pastor or an earthly priest. A great high priest who has ascended into heaven. Jesus, the Son of God. Remember Peter's words? Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. The faith we profess. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let us hold firmly to that faith. Because we don't have a high priest. Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, no. We have one who's been tested and tempted in every way just like we were, and yet without sin. So let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Perfect priest. He's not just perfect because he's the great mediator. He's, he's perfect because he's been there. He's not just perfect because he's out there. He's perfect because he's here. He's not just perfect because he was divine. He's perfect because he was human. He's not just perfect because he was perfect. He's perfect because he was perfect for us. Or in the words of Paul, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to become literally sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the perfect high priest, says the writer. And that perfect high priest walked through every trial of life that we'll walk through. And he did it without sin. So we can go to him when we're struggling and when we are struggling and failing because of sin. And he'll understand. He's that perfect high priest. My goodness. Undeserved redemption. Hidden wisdom. Perfect high priest. That's what it meant. When Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But just one last thing. It also means that the Christ, the Son of the living God, is the real presence of God. Now, for those of you who know anything about the history of theology, you know that the words real presence bring up a lot of issues. 
related to the mass, to communion, and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going there. I know you expected me to, but I'm not going there. I'm using it in a different way. Here's how I'm using it. I'm using it as the words of Jesus. Before he left the earth, he said, I want to tell you something. I'm about to leave, but even though I'm leaving, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the earth. I'm about to leave, but I'm not leaving. My presence is always going to be with you. On another occasion, he said, I'm sending the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who will be there for you and will guide you into all truth. Why? Because I'm present with you. Jesus is here. The resurrection isn't just a historical reality. Can I use this word, please? It's important to me. It's an existential reality. It's a personal reality. It's a real presence reality. He died, he ascended to heaven, and he is with us. Not long ago, my wife was um, reading the alumni magazine of Yale Divinity School where we both attended and there was a story that actually was reproduced in Christianity Today by a young woman who was attending Yale as um, a Divinity School student and she was actually an evangelical student and that always catches my attention um, not only because Yale is not really the bastion of evangelicalism, but because I was there like her as an evangelical student with all the trappings and problems with that name. I'm not going to go into that. I'm not talking politics. I'm talking theology. The good news concerning Jesus Christ. She decided as a single young woman that she would try to share her faith in a different kind of way. She signed up for a dating website. And on the dating website, the profile, on which she said was um, certainly a questionable dating site, she explicitly described her faith. And then she waited for suitors. And they came. And every time a request came, she said, we would meet at a coffee house in New Haven. I can almost imagine where she's sitting. And we would talk. One after another. And very quickly in the conversation, they would want to know about her faith. She said on one occasion, I was having a coffee cup, cup conversation. And uh, it happened to be that this... This person was from the Muslim faith. And he started asking her about her faith. She started describing her faith to him in and, and all the detail that she could and talking about Jesus and the importance of him in her life. And finally he just, he stopped kind of loudly. He said, wait, stop a minute. You mean 
Jesus is alive? And she goes, yeah. I mean, he's alive. And then she said, he said, Jesus is alive? Jesus is alive? About that loud. And all the eyes in the coffee shop turned towards him. And he goes, my goodness, this changes everything. It does, my friends. It changes everything. When we meet together, Christ is really present with us. You don't see him, but he's right there. When you pray in your room, all by yourself, and no one can hear, he hears because he's right there, present with you. When your life has come to a point of desperation or confusion or chaos and you don't know where to turn and you cry out to God, you're not alone. He's there. He's with you. And when you just walk tomorrow, when you go to work, when you see your friends, when you play, He's walking with you because he's alive. The Christ, the Son of the living God, is alive. And that changes everything. Let's pray.